Well, thank you all for coming here tonight to listen to me speak. I'm going to speak about um, wisdom in Buddhism and where it comes from. And the reason I'm going to talk about that again is because I was talking to a woman the other day, and she said, um, wisdom is very important in Buddhism. It is one of the wings of the bird. So the bird of Buddhism has two wings. One is compassion, one is wisdom. If both wings are there, it can fly. But the question I had was, where does wisdom come from? And I have come to the conclusion it comes from three different places. Now, if we look at the Dharma, and if we look at the first talk of the Buddha, the Dhamma Chaka Pavatana Sutta, the turning of the wheel talk, we find he talks about the Eightfold Path. And if we understand what the Eightfold Path is, right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration, we can take those eight path factors and put them into three categories, personal discipline, mental purification, and wisdom. So I said to myself, the first place we can find wisdom in Buddhism is in the Eightfold Path. There are two path factors that we find in the wisdom category. They are right view and right intention. Right view means to understand the Four Noble Truths in an intellectual way by reading it and discussing it and listening to Dharma talks about it, but it also means to have a direct experience of the Four Noble Truths. So we look at the Four Noble Truths and we find the first truth is that life is really difficult. Why is life so difficult? Because we are born. Why are we born? Because we have karma. Because we are born, we are going to get sick, we are going to get old, and we are going to die. A lot of people don't think about that as being unsatisfactory, but if you think of it in this way, 100 years from today, seven billion people will be dead. That's a lot of people dying. I don't know if we can put them all in the ground. Of those seven billion people that are alive today, every one of them will get sick over and over and over again. And of those seven billion people, a lot of them will get really old and they'll have gray hair or no hair, they'll have teeth or no teeth, they won't be able to see very well, and they won't be able to hear very well. And we look at this as being ultimately unsatisfactory from a Buddhist standpoint, because life is never good very long. Even if you go to Knott's Berry Farm, down the road and spend the whole day there and eat ice cream and have fun, sooner or later they will ask you to leave because they have to close.
And that's just like life. Sooner or later, our happiness will go away. It has to leave too. So, why is our life unsatisfactory according to Buddhism? It's because we have desire and attachment, and we think things should be a certain way, and we try really hard to make them that way, and yet it never turns out to be exactly how we want it to be. Now, when I had hair, and I used to comb my hair, I had an idea of how I wanted my hair to look. And I had a blow dryer, and I had hairspray, and I had a brush, and I would work on it for a very long time, and never did it look the way I thought it should. So I wasn't really happy with my hair. Now that I don't have any hair, I'm thinking I should have been more happy with the hair that I had. It goes away. So we have this idea of holding on to all the good stuff in our life and pushing away all the bad stuff in our life. And the Buddha said we are born with original ignorance. We can't see life the way it really and truly is. That is why we are unhappy. We see a lot of things to be permanent that aren't very permanent at all. Sometimes when we're young, we look at our life as being pretty permanent, but then you get to be 60 or 70 and your life seems really sort of impermanent. You look at the trees and some trees can live five, six, seven hundred years, almost permanent. But then you look at the mountains and the mountains can live to be 10 million years old before they turn to dust. And then you look at the earth, and the earth can be a billion years old before it turns to dust. But nothing, nothing stays the same very long at all, and that causes us to be unhappy. But the Buddha, being the wise man that he was, said, I am going to find the answer to being unhappy. And at the age of 35, while sitting underneath the Bodhi tree, he succeeded. And for 45 years, he taught, I have found the answer to being unhappy. The answer is nirvana. If you achieve nirvana, you'll never be unhappy again. Then he went on to talk about the Eightfold Path as a way of achieving nirvana. Now that is the intellectual understanding of the Four Noble Truths. But there is the direct experience of the Four Noble Truths that goes beyond an intellectual understanding. It's something you do during your day and you see impermanence and you see unhappiness and you see attachment and you see all the things that you had read and talked about with the monk coming true in your very own life and that is the direct experience. So they have said it is a mundane and intellectual way to understand and a supra-mundane, a direct experience. Now there's one other thing that goes along with understanding the Four Noble Truths. 
in the wisdom category of the Eightfold Path, and it is understanding how important karma is. And I talked about that a little bit last time. Karma is the most important thing that we have in our life. And why is that the case? If we have good karma, we have a good and happy life. If we have bad karma, we have a sad and unhappy life. If we have good karma, we will have a good rebirth. If we have bad karma, we will have an uncomfortable and bad rebirth. Why is that so important? It's so important because in 100 years, 7 billion people will be dead and they'll want to get reborn again. They'll want to go into the heaven realm or they want to go into the human realm and there's only one thing that goes into the heaven realm or into the human realm and it is our karma. We need to take care of our karma. It is the most valuable thing we have and can work with. In understanding that, you now have a mundane or an intellectual understanding of karma. But if you practice kindness and generosity and compassion and see how that changes your karma and how much better your life becomes, then it is no longer simply an intellectual understanding. Now you know it to be true because you have experienced it in your own life. The second aspect in the Eightfold Path is right view, number one, right intention, number two. So the wisdom of right intention means that we need to have the intention of generosity, we need to have the intention of love and kindness, and we need to have the intention of compassion. Intention means our mind is thinking about it and eventually our mouth and our body will talk and act on our intentions. So, if you have ever been angry at someone and had an angry intention and then opened your mouth, sometimes unpleasant words can come out. If you really like somebody or love someone and you're thinking about how much you love them and then you open your mouth, kind and pleasant words will come out. So the Buddha said, our mind leads our speech and action into the world. What we think will eventually be what we say and what we do. So we want to think good things so we have good speech and good action. And you may say to yourself, what is a good thing to think about? And the Buddha would have said, love, generosity, compassion, and wisdom. And then you say, well, what is a bad thing to think about? And the Buddha would have said, greed, hatred, and delusion or ignorance. So we have all these thoughts all the time running through our minds and our job is to, if we have a thought of hate, don't say or do anything. 
if we have a thought of kindness, we want to say and we want to do something. Now, I was talking to the monk today and I understand that you're going to have a blood drive and give a pint of blood so other people can continue living. Is that a good thought or a bad thought? Good thought. It is a good thought. And in having that good thought and having that good action, you get good karma. And your life will be better because of that. So it all works together. So in the Eightfold Path, we can find wisdom. Now I said to myself, how about meditation? Can we find wisdom in meditation? There are 44 different kinds of meditation. In 40 kinds of meditation, we can find one kind of wisdom. In four kinds of meditation, we can find the other kind of wisdom. So I'm going to talk about the four kinds first. It's called insight meditation, or vipassana meditation, or mindfulness meditation. This is the exact meditation that the Buddha did in order to achieve nirvana. It had been practiced by the other Buddhas who had lived on the world before him, but had been lost once the last person practicing Buddhism died. Siddhartha rediscovered the path to nirvana through his own effort, wisdom, and compassion and started the wheel of Dharma turning again 2,600 years ago. One day, the last person who practices Buddhism will die, and then the next Buddha will be reborn on earth to start the wheel of Dharma turning again. That Buddha's name will be Maitreya Buddha. If we practice insight meditation, we can understand three things in a very unique and special way. I gave a talk last Sunday at a Unitarian church about these three aspects of Buddhist wisdom found in insight meditation, and all the people, even if they have never heard about Buddhism, found these three aspects of wisdom to be very interesting and very valuable in understanding why humans suffer. In the insight meditation known as Vipassana, the first wisdom aspect that we come to understand is that everything is always changing. In Pali, it's called Anicca. Things are in a constant state of change all the time. You are changing, the world is changing, your clothes are changing, your shoes are changing, your dog or cat is changing. Nothing stays the same longer than a moment. And you might say, well, how long is a moment? And I would say, how many moments are in a minute? And the answer is, as many as you want. So things change every moment. Because things change every moment, we are not happy. Why aren't we happy? Because we like things to stay 
just the way they are. Looking in the mirror today and looking in the mirror 50 years ago, I have changed quite a bit. I would prefer to look like I did 50 years ago. But everything changes. So now I look in the mirror and I say, who is this person looking back? Look at all the wrinkles and he hasn't got much hair and the hair that he does have is gray and he's a little overweight. Maybe he needs to eat less every day so he'll be a little healthier and maybe he should take vitamins and exercise so he can still walk around the block because 50 years ago he could run around the block. Now he has trouble walking around the block. If I got attached to never wanting to change or get old, I would be very unhappy. I am not attached to being young, but I would like to stay healthy as I get old. My car is doing fine, but every now and then I have to put new oil in because the oil gets dirty. I have to check the tire pressure. I have to put the gasoline in. I have to clean the windshield because it doesn't stay clean very long because everything changes. I have eight cats that I feed every day at the meditation center and they're all homeless and they found a home with us and one died just two weeks ago. An old, old cat died and it was so sad and we buried the cat and gave it a nice Buddhist funeral and blessing and wished it well on its next rebirth and we know because the cat lived at the meditation center it will be reborn as a human and we are hoping one day it will come live at our meditation center and pay rent. <laughs> but it's very sad to lose your pets and then to lose your friends. Now and then as we get older one friend dies or another friend dies. If we get old enough both our parents will be dead and we'll still be alive. It continues and continues. Everything changes and change does not normally bring us happiness. It brings us unhappiness. So this is the first aspect of Buddhist wisdom that comes out of insight meditation. The second aspect of Buddhist wisdom is called dukkha. And we all know what that means. That means life is ultimately unsatisfactory. Some people say dukkha means suffering. But humans don't suffer all the time. We have good days and we have bad days. We have fun things and we have not so fun things. So we're not always suffering. We're not always unhappy. If we were, we would probably all commit suicide. So we have enough good things in our life to keep us wanting to live and experience our life and get to the next day. But sooner or later, because everything changes, we'll become unhappy, we'll become sad, we'll become despondent and wish things would be different than they are. And then we wake up the next day and everything's different and it's a better and then we have a nice day and then the next day it's not so nice. We have a lot of homework to do and a test to take. And then the next day is the weekend and then it is fun again. 
And it just keeps going like that. We have good and we have bad. People who always want to have good will be disappointed. So I think for us, being a Buddhist, we have to understand that our life will be filled with both good and bad. But because everything changes, the good won't last as long as it could, and and the bad will change as well. So the good and bad will last, but it will always change. The third aspect of Buddhist wisdom is called anatta. This is the most difficult of all to understand. So I'm going to try to share my understanding with you to help you understand how I understand anatta. Long, long ago, when humans were living in caves, what we came to understand is nothing. We were just like the dogs and the cats and the birds and the elephants. We were living in the present moment with no past or no future and no way of identifying ourselves. And for some reason, something happened that one human being woke up to the fact that he or she was not connected to the world like all the other animals. So imagine looking into a pond of water and seeing your face reflected back and understanding that that is your face. If you put a mirror in front of a cat or a dog and they see their image, they think it's a different cat or a different dog. They don't think it's them. They can't see themselves in the way humans can see themselves. Then, when we were very small children, all of a sudden we would be hungry and we would cry and the universe would feed us. The universe would feed us. Then as we got a little older, we started to figure out that there was someone else in the room with us. And that turned out to be mom. Mom was there. We didn't know that mom existed. We thought the universe was feeding us. And now we understand that mom is feeding us. And then one day we look down and we see something and we're not quite sure what it is. And it turns out to be our hand. And we go, I wonder if that hand is attached to me. And as we get older, we understand that we can move our feet and our hands and our arms and our legs, and we have a body, and now we are separate from mom, and we are separate from the bed, and we are separate from the room. And then mom starts to teach us words to give us an understanding so we can communicate with other human beings. So mom will point to something and say, chair, chair, chair. And then one day, because you want to make mom happy, you say chair too. And mom is so happy. But what is a chair? Is it the sound that you just made? Is that a chair? 
Is it the image that your mom was pointing at? Is there only one kind of chair? Or are there a thousand kind of chairs? And what's the difference between a chair and a stool and a bench? They're all similar, but they all have different words. So we begin to acquire a vocabulary so we can name things around us and we can communicate with other people. So when somebody says a chair, right now in our minds, a picture of our own little personal chair, the way we think of a chair, arises in our mind. Some people might think of a rocking chair. Some people might think of a throne. Some people might think of a leather chair, or a wooden chair, or a plastic chair, or an aluminum chair. But this little image comes in our mind, and now we have communication. And then somebody took a piece of paper and started drawing lines on the paper and made up 26 letters and connected the letters in a certain way to have words. And now, because we've gone to school and we've become educated, we can look at a piece of paper with lines on it and not see the lines anymore. But now we see the words and we see the images that the words create. It is a miracle. For a long time, the only people that were allowed to read were the kings and the priests. And then, all of a sudden, the men were allowed to read. And then, all of a sudden, the women were allowed to read. And then, all of a sudden, we all had to read whether we wanted to or not. So we went to school. And not only did we learn how to read, we learned how to count. And counting was very important to the merchants who were selling things. And the first way they kept track of counting was their hands. So it was ten. They counted to ten because they had ten fingers. Wow! Now we can have five oranges and five apples and still have ten because mathematics has allowed us to abstractly understand the world. While all this was happening, we were becoming somebody. We were told we needed to exist in a very special way. We were either a man or a woman and we had a name and we had an age. And we had to think of ourselves in that way. Because we needed to be separate, we needed to be an individual, we needed to be unique. And we have I, me, mine, which is always about me. And we were very selfish in the beginning of our life because we needed to survive in a very, very scary world. So, when I was hungry, I wanted to eat, and I didn't care if anybody else ate because I was hungry and I wanted to eat. But then we started to get more kind and generous, and we were concerned about other people being hungry and other people eating as well. 
So we were in somebody training, and at your young age, people ask you all the time, what do you want to be? Who are you going to be when you grow up? What do you want to do? And we have all these images of what we're going to be and what we're going to do, and they're always good and happy images. But who is that person that we're thinking about, really? Is that us? Or is that somebody that we'd like to be? Or somebody we should be? Or somebody we could be? The Buddha said, I have looked very carefully inside myself to see if I exist. And he said, I don't exist in the way I thought I did. There is never one thing that determines who I am. It is always more than one thing. For instance, the Buddha said, humans are mind and body, nama rupa. The Buddha said, humans are the five aggregates, the five khandas, skandhas. The five aggregates, that's what humans are? Aren't humans Mary and Bob and Sally and Joe? No, the Buddha said, humans are the five aggregates, form, sensation, perception, volition, and consciousness. Four of those things have to do with the mind. One of them has to do with the body. But the Buddha never said we were one thing. We were always many things that were connected together. And because of anicca, impermanence, that one thing that we think we are, and actually we are many, are always changing. So really, we don't ever know who we really are at any one time, but everybody tells us who we are. If I'm driving on the freeway and I'm going too fast and the police officer pulls me over and he's going to give me a ticket, he says, who are you? And I pull out my driver's license and I says, this is who I am. And he says, okay. And he takes that and he writes down the numbers, he looks at the picture to make sure that's who I am. But am I really the driver's license? That picture was taken three years ago. I gained 20 pounds since that picture was taken. Who is that person in the picture? It's the person I need to be if I got pulled over for a ticket. The police officer does not want to hear, I am not who you think I am. I am always changing in a constant state of flux. I'm only like this for one moment. And there are many moments in a minute. You know what he does when you say that? He arrests you and takes you to a mental hospital. (laughs) So the Buddha talked to us and said, it is okay to think you are this or you are that. That is relative reality. That is important because we need to pretend Each of us exists separately. But ultimately, we are conditional. And the Buddha said, we have many conditions that that 
we require to stay alive more than we can ever think about. But just to make it simple, one of the most important conditions we have is oxygen. We need to inhale oxygen all the time. If for some reason we cannot inhale oxygen for five, six, or seven minutes, we will die. We have right now seven billion people on this earth who have been able to breathe oxygen all the time. Is that a miracle? Not one of them died because they couldn't find oxygen? They're all still here. We need to have food. If we don't eat food, we will die. Now, some people can live for 20 or 30 days without eating food and not die. I can live 40 days without eating food because I have reserves. <laughs> but if I go long enough without food, I will die. And so far in my whole life, I've always had enough food and oxygen to live. We need shelter. We need a place to hide from the sun and the rain and the cold. We need clothing to protect us. We need so many things just to keep our life here on earth going. And most of us never think about that. So the Buddha said, we are not the self we think we are. Those are the three things that come out of vipassana meditation, the three aspects of Buddhist wisdom you'll understand intellectually or have a direct experience of and know them to be true. Now we come to a different kind of meditation, which is called samatha meditation or tranquility meditation. And this kind of meditation is often practiced in Mahayana Buddhism. In Zen or other forms of Mahayana, they will sit quietly, but they won't be doing mindfulness meditation. They'll be doing concentration meditation, deep states of concentration, one-pointedness. What they're trying to do is let go of past and future and come to the present moment experience of their life. It is really hard to let go of past and future because our mind is always thinking about what we should have done yesterday or what we can do tomorrow, but it's rarely thinking about what we're going to do right now. So now we have this situation of right now. How does that feel? How can I experience right now? In this kind of meditation, they say one of the easiest ways to experience right now is to find a sensation in your body that is happening. So you've been sitting on the floor for a while, your back might hurt a little bit, your knees might hurt a little bit, your arm might hurt a little bit. That pain, that sensation, is always happening right now. It's not happening yesterday. 
It's not going to happen tomorrow in the same way it's happening right now. So the Buddha suggested in this kind of meditation to find a sensation, and he suggested the sensation of breath, because we're always breathing, and the air is always going in and out of our mouth and our nose. So imagine sitting on the floor quietly, closing your mouth so the air only comes out of your nose, in and out, in and out. You want to count the sensations 1 to 10, 10 to 1, 1 to 10, 10 to 1, and focus so hard on the sensation and the counting that nothing else exists in your life, which is really difficult. But I bet if you went to see the movie Transformers and you were sitting in the movie theater and all of a sudden the robots started fighting each other and the sound was so loud you couldn't even hear yourself think and the action was just kept moving back and forth, you would have no past and future. You would be so glued to that movie screen that you wouldn't think of anything but what was going on. That's the present moment. That can happen in your meditation, but it's not as exciting as Transformers. (laughs) So you're sitting there, and the breath is going out, and the breath is coming in, and going out and coming in, and now you're so focused, just like in the movie theater, that the past and the future, and all those thoughts you have of the past and the future, just fall away, and now the only thing that's going on is the breath only thing that's going on is the breath. Now, the next thing that's going to happen is you're going to lose your body. Have you ever lost your body? Probably not. Let me tell you how it works in meditation. We have a body image, a body map, that we learned long, long ago. When we were little children, we liked to run into walls, not realizing the wall was different than us. And then one day our mom said, you can't keep running into the wall. You're going to hurt yourself. Your body ends here. The wall starts there. Those two can never come together. So in our mind, we have this body map of where our body ends and the rest of the world begins. So if I was thirsty and I wanted to drink from a bottle of water, I could be looking at you, I could move my hand, pick up the bottle without even looking at it because I knew where the bottle was and I knew where my hand was. So I have this body image inside my head. If we meditate and go deeper and deeper into that one-pointedness concentration, our body image falls away. And we no longer have a body, and we are no longer separate from the world around us. And what happens at that moment is a great sense of bliss, happiness, and pleasure, because we have come home. The universe, the cosmos, has embraced us. And it's saying to us, welcome back. It's good to see you again. But we can't live there because we have to be separate. And being separate creates a bit of dis-ease and discomfort and suffering for us. 
but it is necessary for us to exist in a very complicated world. I am fond of saying, if I am one with the door, I can never leave the room. I have to be separate from the door in order to open it and walk out. See how that sort of works? But while we're sitting in meditation and not driving a car and not going anyplace, we can lose our past and future, we can lose our body image, and we can come to a place where we're simply a sensation of breath. What this means is this, that we are now having a direct experience of shunyata. That word means emptiness. We are having a direct experience of emptiness. What is emptiness? The definition I like to use is this, empty of independent existence. Not being separate, but being interconnected and interdependent with all things for all time. We have that direct experience. In the later form of Buddhism, it's called a bodhisattva or bodhicitta, the mind of enlightenment. When you come to this place of interconnection and interdependent, you realize that you are connected to everyone and everything in the whole world all the time, whether you want to be or not, whether you experience or not, whether you understand it or not. It is a true and factual experience, and we can intellectually understand it as well. It seems to be a bit more difficult, though. Now, what happens when you experience this is your life now is changed forever. Because now you see a person who's hungry, and it's not a separate person, it's part of you that's hungry. And so you go offer the person some food so you can end your hunger as well. And you see someone who is homeless, and it's not just some person that's homeless, it's a part of you that's homeless. And then you see someone who is dying, and you feel sorry for them, but now you realize it is a part of you that is dying as well. They say when this happens, your heart breaks, and it never mends again. Your heart is always broken for the rest of your life, and you look at the world, and what you see is not the happiness, but you see the sadness of all the people living in this world just waiting to die. And you become of service to them, and you offer them food, and you offer them drink, and you offer them advice if they want, or support if they don't want your advice. And you try to be kind and useful to all the creatures in the world. And if you found a homeless cat in your backyard, you just feed the homeless cat so it didn't die of hunger. It would be the normal thing to do. It's really hard to be happy, though, though happiness does occur. Don't you hate it when people say, I'm having a party, it's going to be really fun, and then you go to the party and it's not fun at all? I call this mandatory fun. People keep thinking it's going to be fun, and it never is. But then, without expecting it at all, you're in the park, and you see a butterfly going from flower to flower, and you say, how fun is that? 
It happens unexpectedly, without you even, even wanting it to happen. Fun occurs because you see the interconnection and interdependence of all things all the time. So we have all these kinds of wisdom in Buddhism. We have the wisdom of the Four Noble Truths. We have the wisdom of karma. We have the wisdom of intention. We have the wisdom of insight meditation, which leads us to understand impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and not self. And then in another kind of meditation, we have the wisdom of emptiness, that all things are connected and interdependent and nothing can exist alone or apart from everything else. This wisdom changes the way we look at the world and the way we react and respond to people and things in it. And that's why in Buddhism they encourage us to be wise because we will be better off for it and the world will be a better place to live if more people find wisdom. I'm going to stop there and ask if anybody has any questions about what I've said. Did any of it make sense at all? Sort of, okay. So life is pretty interesting, isn't it? There's a lot of stuff going on, and it never stays the same very long, and every day is the very first day of our life. Even though it seems like we've done it before, everything is different. So none of us should ever be bored thinking, oh, this is so boring. It's the first time. You've never seen your friends like that before. You've never seen your family like that before. It's the very first time you've seen them like that. And it's the very first time you've seen yourself like that. How cool is life? So no questions? Anybody have any answers? Good. Well, shall we do a little meditation? Maybe just five minutes? Not very long. Just to see if we can come to the present moment experience of our life. So think about the breath going out and coming in, going out and coming in. Just take your mind and just bring it to that sensation. How does it feel? If that sensation stops long enough, you're dead. But it never stops that long. It just keeps going. Sometimes the breath is, is deep. Sometimes it's very shallow. Sometimes it's really loud if you're running and need to take a breath. Sometimes it's very soft. You can barely hear it. Sometimes the breath almost seems to go away. And then it comes back again. The breath is just fascinating to watch. So let's watch it for five minutes. Here we go. <sighs> 